Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, I'm doing Jurassic Park, which I guess technically isn't history. We're talking about archaeology, paleontology, very much prehistory, but absolutely it's stuff that we can learn about and it doesn't get much more pop culture than one of the biggest films of all time. Welcome to Jurassic Park. But... This is such a big subject. I'm going to need some help. And for the first... It seems to happen once a year. Greg Chapman is coming out from behind the editor's desk and he's gonna be talking to us today. Hello, Greg. Hello, Jim. Hello, hello, people of the podcast listening world. Yes, that's right. You can actually hear my voice today. Not just my gentle mockery of Jem through sound clips. Yes, although I'm sure he's probably going to put in after this. He's such a dreamboat. I love. I always love that that little sound bite you put in whenever I I make reference to you. Why not? Oh my God, he's a dream. Why not? Indeed, we we we've got to enjoy it, haven't we? So, Jem, you're taking on Jurassic Park today. Absolutely, and the reason why you're here is because. The reason why I'm here is because I am a, a fossil hunter, a dinosaur hunter. It's one of the things I do. And also because we've recently just made a film about some of the... A documentary about some of the early paleontologists, which we'll come on to, I think, a little bit later when it feeds in organically. So we don't get a big plug right at the start of the show. <laughs> there, there we go, people. So he's more of an expert, far more of an expert in this area than me. And if you want to support this podcast, you've got to be supporting Greg's new documentary which he'll give you the full details in a bit but you came here for some of the pop culture and let's go back in time shall we so jurassic park the film is obviously based on jurassic park the novel which was written by michael Crichton. now michael Crichton is an example of very much a kind of well ironically like the dinosaurs He's kind of extinct, or this kind of writer is extinct, because I'm going to say from the 1950s to the 1990s, there were these big-name male writers who wrote exciting action-type books that were quite easy to be converted into movies. Perhaps most notably, you got Ian Fleming with James Bond. Bond. James Bond. 
you've got somebody like Alistair MacLean, who you might not have heard of, but believe me, in the 60s and 70s, Alistair MacLean books and movies were really big business. And then you've also got Michael Crichton, who his first big book was The Andromeda Strain that came out in 1969, so right at the end of the 60s, and funnily enough, it was turned into a movie in the early 70s. Again, like MacLean, like Fleming, the book and the film, big hit. This allowed Crichton actually to do something different to the likes of Ian Fleming, where he ended up writing not a book, but a screenplay which he was allowed to direct. That was called Westworld, which again got really good reviews and made a ton of money at the box office and led to a number of, of contemporary spin-offs and like 30 years later also an HBO TV series. I designed every part of this place. Not a theme park, but an entire world. So Crichton was big business in, in every sense of that term, which what do I say that they're they're kind of defunct because, yes, of course, you get someone like J.K. Rowling today, massive seller of books, and her ideas are turned into movies, and things like George R.R. R. Martin as well. But like I say, these kind of more manly, action-orientated books just don't exist anymore. You might turn around and say, well, hang on, Jim, what about Jack Reacher? And I would say, yeah, that's the end. That's the, that's the sunset on this type of genre, because... The first Reacher came out in 1997. I mean, it's been around for like over 25 years. So we're just not getting modern ones like that. Why? Because of video games, because of Netflix, because of all these other things. Basically, young 20-something men, when they want that real adrenaline ride, are not going on to Amazon to buy the latest book about bloody blah They can be historical epics. Those things still exist. But actually... I'm kind of pleased to say that the world of writing is very much dominated by, in the world of fiction, I should say, very much dominated by women nowadays and tend to be more character pieces rather than adrenaline-fueled roller coaster rides like the guns of Navarone or let's do some other Crichton ones, shall we? We've obviously got in 1980, we've got Congo in 87 we got sphere so these are these are sci-fi movies as well as sort of adventure and action and then in 1990 he brings out jurassic park the novel and this is almost immediately picked up by steven spielberg to give you an idea he was paid 1.5 million dollars for the film rights and this is in 1990 money and then he was paid another half million. So he made two million dollars just from the book and also from writing the screenplay of the movie. And interestingly, there's quite a lot of differences. If, if you love the film, and I love the film, and it's a seminal film in terms of movie entertainment, it's an amazing roller coaster ride. Adrenaline as well, there we go. So just like the Alistair McLean stuff, although less shooting, obviously. But what's interesting is there's quite a lot of differences between the book and the movie. So one of the things I did want to point out that Crichton was just going from strength to strength. There was nothing wrong with his career. But interestingly, it's kind of forgotten that in a way it helps Spielberg. Now, why would I possibly say that? Well, it obviously 
when you got the Jaws coming out, that was in 75, that was just the biggest grossing movie of all time at that time. It, it beat The Godfather, which had previously been the biggest grossing movie, and then in 77, a couple of years after Jaws, we get Star Wars, which again is the biggest grossing movie of all time. So, big, big movie. And I'm going to say that Spielberg, basically from 1975 to 1984, so basically for a decade... He did brilliantly well. He only had one flop in that period of time, 1941. But everything else, if we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark or E.T., etc., all big monster hits. But after 84, and indeed in 84, we get a period where he's just not firing on all cylinders. Yes, I'm aware that in 89 we get Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but of course the critics could say, He's just resting on his laurels there. He's picking up a character he's already done twice before. It is you, Junior. Don't call me that, please. Well, what are you doing here? But he did interesting, noble, but ultimately unsuccessful movies. Financially, they all they all made money, but they weren't E.T. money. They weren't Jaws money. I'm talking about films that generally everyone considers are lesser Spielberg films like The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun always nobody talks about always and hook in 1991 now a lot of people have gone back to hook and said you know actually it's a lot of fun but at the time it was genuinely seen as a big disappointment and certainly it wasn't the big huge mega hit that everybody assumed it would be again it wasn't a flop but it just felt like the first decade he could do no wrong and now it was feeling like is he ever going to properly get back into the groove and so there was a, a serious conversation about you know is this going to reclaim his crown as one of the greatest sort of family action directors ever the one that had come out just a couple of years previously was terminator 2 by james cameron and people were talking about cameron you know after aliens and terminator and coming soon true lies is he now the number one guy for the big blockbuster so there was a lot riding on jurassic park the movie this was a chance to remind everybody that hey i'm steven spielberg and i absolutely can direct this kind of stuff but also it involved having to use very new and very much developing technology to try and stop it being the adorable but ultimately rather of its time special effects of the Ray Harryhausen era. We're talking about the Sinbad movies and Clash of the Titans and things like that. And and obviously, if you're going to show dinosaurs on, on the movie screen and we're now into the 90s and this is Spielberg, we're going to need to see something different. Now, I'm aware I have been talking for quite some time now, but hopefully this shows you what a genuine event Jurassic Park was when it came out in 1993. Indeed, the, the tagline on the posters when it came out was a movie 65 million years in the making. And it kind of felt like that. But the question was, was the movie going to live up to the colossal amounts of hype and expectation? So... I'm going to do one other example. I'm going to give you one example. I've said that there's differences between the books and the movie. And then I'm going to get Greg in here to start talking because I feel a bit rude. Shut up and let me speak! Uh, but the thing I wanted to say was, let's take John Hammond, the, the guy who sets up Jurassic Park. Now, played by Richard Attenborough in the movies as a sort of very 
avuncular, sort of like a everybody sort of slightly crazy grandfather. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Very much in the style of someone like Walt Disney. There's even references to that in the film. But he's basically a guy who wants to, to, to wow everybody and his heart's absolutely in the right place. Whereas if you like, what Crichton's book was about was just because science can, does that mean science should? Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. It's a cautionary tale about technology going out of control, a bit like some of his other books or movies, like Westworld, for example. So in the book, John Hammond is still the guy who created Jurassic Park, but he's a bit more sinister, a bit more cold, Whereas you'd love to hang out with the movie John Hammond, you'd probably be a bit cautious and on your guard with the slightly more cynical, slightly more clinical John Hammond of the book. So that's just one of the major differences between characters, between the plot, between the action beats of the book and the movie. And now we go to Greg. <laughs> well, yes, I, I am. I am still here. I, I hadn't drifted off. I was enjoying that, and a yeah, couple of things to pick up on straight away there is the mentioning of Westworld. And I always think that when you get Michael Crichton and he writes Westworld, the film, and what's the plot of Westworld? Well, if we look at it, it's a theme park with these robots that go bad and start to take over the park. And I always feel like when we get as far as Michael Crichton sitting down to write Jurassic Park, it almost feels like he wanted to write a novelization of Westworld and realised he couldn't, I don't know whether that's contractual or whether he just thought it was too old, and basically it's a very, very similar story, but looking at new technology, looking at the things people were talking about then, the possibilities of cloning, the possibilities of genetic engineering. Yeah, absolutely, just, sorry, just to jump in there for a moment, but if you think about the basic beats, everybody goes to a park, everybody's very excited about this park, and then basically the park starts going wrong and now everybody's lives are in danger. So that that overarching story is identical in both areas. And the theme of it, and I think when you look at the sort of 60s, 70s films, movies, I think we had a lot more of the, the robot style sci-fi, you know, the robots come and take over. You know, you even think of like the early Doctor Who, the Cybermen. You know, it's a very, actually, it's a very easy thing to make for a film on a budget. It's a robot film because it's quite easy to stick someone in a vaguely robot-y suit, or even if you're clever and you make Westworld and you say, oh, the robots just look like people. We don't actually have to do anything. Yes, yes. excellent way to save budget. But when you get to dinosaurs, to actually make a dinosaur look anything like real, as you say, you know, you go back to Ray Harryhausen and the stop-motion dinosaurs, and yes, they're fantastic and they are wonderful. I really enjoy seeing them, but they don't look real. You don't, you're not going to sit there in a movie theatre... But actually, if you go back and watch the first Jurassic Park film today, and you think that is now, what are we, 25 years old, something like that? Yeah, nearly 25 years old, I think, now. No, well, it's nearly 30. Nearly 30, gosh. Actually, it came out in 93. So, hi, everybody. 2023, we can do the maths, okay? It is 30 years old. Yay! So, it's 30 years old, and you look at a lot of films that are 30 years old now, and you look at the special effects in those films that are 30 year old, and they look dated. They don't look believable. But, because they use so many live effects, you know, they actually had real dinosaurs, a lot of puppetry, a lot of animatronics. You go back and you look at that film, and Jurassic Park, 
doesn't feel as dated as it should. In the the effects, the dinosaurs, they still look real. And when I say real, I'm going to sort of specify that. And we're going to go into this a little bit, I think. Because they look real for the time and for what the directors of the film decided the dinosaurs should look like. Because there are, we pointed out, you know, it starts as a book, then goes to a film. There are some huge dinosaur errors in the film. And some of those dinosaur errors are things where we have learned since then. Paleontology, same as history, this is a moving goalpost. We're always learning new things. And when we look at this, it's the same as Jim always says about history. You can't look at history backwards. You know, you can't judge somebody in the past by the morality of today. And I think the same thing's true when we look at Jurassic Park. We can't judge the authenticity of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park by what we know about them today. That, that I'll give them a slide on. However, there are some mistakes in that film that were blatantly obvious even when the film was being made. I mean, for example, Jim, you're familiar with the Velociraptors. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Every school child is. One of the things we do as uh, fossil hunters, my wife and I, is we do school talks and we have school children down and we hold up a claw and this claw must be, I don't know, sort of eight inches long. And we say to them, what kind of dinosaur do you think this claw comes from? And guaranteed the first response will be Velociraptor because it looks like the sort of claw you'd see on those movie Velociraptors and in case you haven't seen the film, I don't know what you've been doing with the last 30 years, but if you haven't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there will be spoilers for a 30-year-old movie in this in this podcast, okay? Just as a warning there. You go for it, Greg. But there are velociraptors in the film, and those velociraptors, even in the modern ones, these are eight-foot-tall killing machines, these huge, massive claws that leap out taller than a man, and, uh, well, to be completely honest about the Velociraptor, the Velociraptor was essentially a Jurassic turkey. It's about the same size as a turkey. It's a tiny little thing, little claws. It's not the huge thing. I think they got up to about three foot tall. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's yeah. like their maximum height. Yeah, that's about right. So about three foot tall. So nothing like what we're seeing in the movies. And, I mean, nowadays we think they were probably, or a certain number of paleontologists think they were probably covered in feathers as well, which kind of also loosens things. But... If you look at Jurassic Park and you see those eight-foot-tall dinosaurs, that's not because they didn't know what a velociraptor looked like. And in fact, if you go back to Michael Crichton's book, he actually describes the velociraptor correctly as these smaller dinosaurs. But when they came to make the film and they had these velociraptors in the book as like the main mean baddies, as it were. These are extreme intelligence, even problem-solving intelligence, especially the big one. We bred eight originally, but when she came in, she took over the pride and killed all but two of the others. That one, when she looks at you, you can see she's working things out. And these velociraptors, they're going to be chasing the goodies. And I just want you just to kind of think about that whole film and take the moments where we have these scary velociraptors. You've got a velociraptor chasing down Ellie Sattler, you know, as she runs across the park. And now take that velociraptor and make it three foot tall. And suddenly the whole scene gets a lot less scary. It's more like a little dog chasing her than it is this huge killer dinosaur. Particularly when they're covered in, well, maybe feathers or that kind of fuzz as well. It only looks like a, I don't know, a baby chick on steroids that's chasing them. That's it. It starts to look almost more comical. And so what they actually did was they took a dinosaur called a a Utah raptor, a dinosaur called a Deinonychus. They sort of mixed those together. And instead of using the name of one of those dinosaurs... They instead just decided to keep the name Velociraptor and just kind of 
and no hope nobody noticed that these velociraptors were way bigger than they should have been and i know that they have corrected that in the later films they have mentioned the fact that because of the way these dinosaurs were cloned using different dna from different animals that the velociraptors features had changed or whatever whatever you want to have but that's not what they were thinking in the first film that that's nowhere in the first film and in fact to take away the argument i mean gem when it comes to jurassic park the t-rex we've got to talk about the t-rex Ron. what is the most important thing according to jurassic park if a t-rex coming at you what do you do jim gotta stay still don't move don't move it can't see you if you don't move keep absolutely still suspicions based on movement this is nonsense okay this is absolute nonsense we're pretty <laughs> sure and we've been pretty sure since the time of jurassic park that you know this is a, a t-rex some people think he may have been a scavenger. The, the popular opinion, I think, now is leaning back towards him being an apex predator again. But either way, not being able to see things that don't move wouldn't work. If you're an apex predator, you've got to be able to see your prey. You've got to be able to follow your prey. You've got to be able to hunt your prey, even if it stands still. It's no good. You know, imagine a lion on the plane and all the gazelles suddenly stand still and the lion's looking around and completely <laughs> lost, you know? That's not how it is. Suddenly, all these trees have arrived. But, of course, the, everything you just said, I uh, completely agree. But, of course, there's only so much information you can get from a fossil. So, actually understanding what the ocular abilities of any dinosaur is, is pure conjecture, right? It's conjecture. It's, I mean, it's the same as everything in history, really. We have to look at what's available. And, really, a lot of this is based on uh, comparative anatomy and comparative paleobiology and things like that so we're looking at a t-rex and we're looking the teeth it's clearly either a hunter or possibly a scavenger you can argue those teeth would be better just for ripping flesh off a dead carcass and let's not even go into the fact that if the t-rex was a scavenger and couldn't see things that don't move he'd have no chance of finding anything and also ignoring for a moment the fact that the t-rex also has a sense of smell and there's moments in the film where he's inches away from people that it apparently can't see or smell but yeah, we have to kind of look at the, the dinosaurs, compare them with what we have that's alive today, and then we can put these together and kind of get an idea. And that gives us this idea that as an apex predator or a scavenger, T-Rex would have to have really good eyesight. But again, actually, in the book, Michael Crichton alibied this. Because in the book, Michael Crichton said that some amphibians whose DNA they'd used was actually put into the T-Rex, and that was why the T-Rex was made for the park didn't have good eyesight, couldn't see if he didn't move. However, in the film, they make it the paleontologist who's been studying dinosaurs all his life that just walks in and confidently says, don't worry, people, just don't move, you'll be fine. A T-Rex won't be able to see you if you don't move. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So what I wanted to, to say there is, um, I just want to sort of jump back into the, the movie again. And look, Greg and I are going to be picking it to pieces, but it's safe to say, Greg, we are huge fans of this movie, right? So, so look, we're talking about it compared to history or, let's say, paleontology, rather than, you know, is this a five, five out of five star roller coaster ride, you know, thoroughly entertaining? Absolutely, it's that stuff too. And if you like, the inaccuracies don't get in the way of the enjoyment in any way. So, the thing I wanted to say is I was lucky enough to see it in Leicester Square, which is sort of like the biggest bunch of, of cinemas, movie theatres in London, therefore in the UK. And it was opening night. It wasn't the red carpet event. That happened a couple of days earlier. But we were in basically the largest cinema on the opening night in sort of like hot, red hot in the middle of, of London. 
and just the buzz in the place was amazing. And I will never forget. And this is one of the things I think that Spielberg, he, he is the greatest director of all time, in my opinion, for one reason, that he was editing Jurassic Park while he was filming Schindler's List. So by day, he was doing a utterly different, tonally, very, very serious movie, which eventually won him his first Oscar. So that's amazing that he was doing that by day and then going back to his hotel and then editing this sort of pop bubblegum roller coaster ride at night and getting both of them perfectly right. That is, no other director has been able to do that. I mean, other directors have been able to do movies back to back, but tonally they're exactly the same or they're the continuation of the same thing. So that's number one. But just in this movie, there's an example of how he understands his audience because anybody can get a jump scare. But getting a jump scare twice in the same scene, I don't know anybody else who can do that. Now, the, the, the scene in question... Do you know what I'm talking about out of interest, Greg? Oh, Mr. Arnold. Ab absolutely, yeah. So, basically, we've got Laura Dern who's trying to switch on the power again. And then, basically, she goes down into this basement... And she's standing there and you see Samuel Jackson's arm and then it comes off. It's just his arm. And so that's obviously jump scare number one. And then jump scare number two, which is just brilliant, but technically makes no, no sense, is she finally flips off all the switches. She's got all the fuses back on. The park is back online and she says something, which I'm sure Greg is going to put into the edit of this. Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business. And then a velociraptor just bursts out behind it. <laughs> Jump scare number two, same scene. Bravo, Mr. Spielberg. That is just monumental and amazing. So, yeah, we, we absolutely love this film, but we're just kind of taking it to task. But as Greg's already pointed out, they get a get-out-of-jail-free card because these technically aren't dinosaurs. This is not the cloning of a purebred T-Rex or what have you. A hundred million years ago, there were mosquitoes, just like today. And, just like today, they fed on the blood of animals, even dinosaurs. Instead, science has mucked around with it. There's amphibian DNA and, and other things as well. And so, any mistakes can just be put down to, well, yeah, that was because of the way we grew our dinosaurs. Am I right, Greg? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A, well, a lot of mistakes can be put down to, that's the way we describe it. One of the mistakes that comes... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And this one is, is quite a personal one for me because <laughs> share it with us. You've probably heard, Jim, of the Jurassic Coast in, in Dorset. I think you've been fossil. Absolutely. I've been there. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic place to go for us, and that's the Jurassic Coast. Now, I live on the Isle of Wight. We we hunt for our dinosaur bones on the Isle of Wight, and our beach where we find dinosaur bones, it's not Jurassic. We're not looking for Jurassic fossils on our usual beach. We are looking for Cretaceous fossils. Uh, just, just to, you know, quickly sum up where we are here, the Triassic period, the first period to get dinosaurs, we're going from about 252 to 201 million years ago. We then get the Jurassic, and the Jurassic is like the, the central point of dinosaurs. That's about 200 to 145 million years ago. And then we get the Cretaceous running 145 to about 65 million years ago. And actually, before I leap into why that matters, let me just give you a little example. And this is a fantastic thing I heard once. And if you, wherever you're listening to this, if you're listening to the car, wait until you're stopped, Okay. And if you're listening to this in a telephone booth, wait until you're outside. Okay? But if just for a moment you reach both your arms, just outstretch them by the side of you, as if almost as if you're flying in an aeroplane, and you take your right, the tip of your right fingers as the creation of the world, 4.6 billion years or so ago, if you take that as the creation of the world, and you take the span of your arms as that 4.6 billion years, you have to get all the way from your right fingertips all the way up to your left wrist before we get anything more complicated than single-celled organisms. You have to get to, like, the lower knuckle of your left hand before we get to the early dinosaurs. They last until about the next knuckle of your hand, and then human beings appear on the scene round about where you get the white tip of nail right at the end of your fingernail. So that gives you an idea. When I'm talking about these distinctions, we're talking about a very small slice in the history of the entire world, but we are talking millions of years. The Jurassic period itself lasted millions and millions of years longer than anything even close to human has been running around, using tools, certainly making movies. So the reason why this matters is because... We're down here, we're on our Cretaceous beach, you know, the Jurassic Coast gets all the publicity, the Jurassic Park film you see, and when you look at the Jurassic Park films, I mean, some of the dinosaurs in that movie, the, the, the ones they picked to be like the headline stars, the T-Rexes, the Velociraptors, the Triceratops, the Ankylosaurs, the Pachycephalosaurs, all of these dinosaurs were not alive during the Jurassic period. 
all of these dinosaurs are Cretaceous dinosaurs. So whoever did the marketing for Jurassic Park, and I think I know where this comes from, because frankly, Jurassic is a little bit easier to fit on a poster than Cretaceous is. I think it was just a case of, well, we'll make it easy for people, we'll call it Jurassic Park. Yeah, absolutely. That I, I knew that fact uh, from ages ago, and it, it does make you wonder, and a Cretaceous Park, it's a classic example of that is more accurate, but is it as catchy? And so you can understand why. Well, I mean, let's face it, it was originally Michael Crichton who came up with it, and so I guess he, you know, if, if, if you like, maybe... It's a reference to how much marketing wants to sell a thing rather than be honest about a thing. And it is a point that what we've got with Jurassic Park is it actually made a type of dinosaur famous, as you pointed out, but completely incorrectly. Velociraptors just weren't a conversation. When I was growing up as a kid, I knew about Triceratops and T-Rex and so on and so forth. And all the kids, there, there are sort of certain types of dinosaur that get a lot of love. Velociraptor was getting no love until Michael Crichton started writing about them in Jurassic Park, the book, and then into the movie. And as you said, there is actually a larger version of a Velociraptor called a Utah Raptor. And that seems to be more like what the ones they're actually describing or showing you in, in the movie. Of course, the other big thing that we're going to have to talk about is, I mean, it is an amazing scene where they've got, finally, we get the reveal of the T-Rex. I mean, the great thing, again, about Spielberg is he knows you don't show the monster at the beginning of the film. You make people wait. You make people earn it. It's the same thing with Jaws as it is with Jurassic Park. So the dinosaurs are hinted at, but once we get them, it just doesn't stop coming at you. And, of course, you've got the scene where they're in the Jeeps, and the tropical storms coming in, which, by the way, there genuinely was a real tropical storm. I'm not saying that was footage from it, but the the thing about the film is it ended up going over budget because it was filmed in Hawaii and uh, there was a genuine tropical storm that blew away a lot of the sets. And so they had to rebuild a lot of Jurassic Park. So they were very much working from experience there. But you've got the storm. It's dead at night. And then the, the T-Rex appears. And I have to say before we get onto the technical problems with that scene, which is an amazing, iconic, cinematic moment. It's a piece of cinema history, no argument there whatsoever. But there's the wonderful bit where you've got, as Greg correctly pointed out, I think in the totality of the whole two-hour movie, there's only six minutes of CGI. Everything else is practical uh, dinosaur effects. And they had a huge, most of, a, a T-Rex that they could use in certain moments. And... There's a bit where the T-Rex sort of comes through the ceiling, the, the roof of the of the Jeep at the children, and they're sort of like keeping it off with the perspex, and those children are screaming. Those children were screaming for real because the T-Rex actually uh, ma malfunctioned, and it went down faster and further than it was meant to go. I guess in theory it could have ended up crushing those kids, but Spielberg kept that sort of mistake in the movie because you got genuine screams of terror from the children. Again, well done, Mr. Spielberg. But of course, Greg, you're going to tell me that none of that could have happened because... Well, this is where we get to the, the problems with the T-Rex and, you know, obviously not being able to see, you know, can it see in the dark? Can it not see in the dark? Can it see at all? And let, let's forget the fact that two minutes later, the and it, this is not a dinosaur point. This is a plot hole point. We have the, one of the most famous plot holes in Jurassic Park. One of the best plot holes is the disappearing and reappearing cliff edge. 
because they, they've driven past the T-Rex cage, they've seen the T-Rex, they're, they're on the level with it, and two minutes later, the T-Rex flicks them off the road and they fall down a cliff and land in a tree. And if you watch the film through, you're kind of watching, Greg, hang on a minute. Greg, I have to interrupt there. That is a very obvious plot hole that until you mentioned it, I hadn't realised. I don't know how many times I've seen that movie. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Greg. That's okay. Yeah, the, the cliffs disappear and reappear, and we don't know what's going on. But, uh, oh, and actually, if you've not seen it, you do have to. Uh, I'm going to give everyone here a bit of homework. If you've not seen this, there is a fantastic um, filmmaking artist, um, special effects artist on online, YouTube, wherever. And what he does is he puts cats into films. And he has taken that film in Jurassic Park and replaced the T-Rex with his pet cat. And it is the funniest thing in the world to watch, so it's well worth watching. Actually, when you were talking about special effects, the one thing I will say is, again, the re another reason why this is a piece of film history is there was an amazing animator called Phil Tippett. He's, he was best known for his work on the Star Wars movies. So he did things like the, the Atat and the Rancor monster and things like that. He did all this different animation. Sometimes it was stop animation, sometimes it was go animation, and he basically was brought on by Spielberg to come up with, and indeed, there is an amazing series, I've already mentioned this in another podcast, called Light and Magic. It's the story of industrial light and magic. That's where Phil Tippett worked, and they actually got his stop-motion animation of the Velociraptors. But then... They got the CGI, these computer animated dinosaurs, and Phil Tippett looked at it. Initially, he was very dismissive of it as an idea. He goes, computers aren't there yet. You need to do this. You know, I'll put 110% into it. And then the moment he saw the first bit of test footage, which was a dinosaur just walking across, a T-Rex walking across a field, that's all it was. It was about a nine-second clip, just a proof of concept. But the moment he saw that, he realized, like the dinosaurs, he was extinct. But Spielberg kept him on, and indeed you'll see him in the credits as sort of like a dinosaur animation supervisor or something like that, movement supervisor. And because he understood the shots you needed to do to put in any kind of animation, be it stop motion or, in this case, uh, computer animation. So he was still kept on board. If you like, this was his swan song, his, his uh, last hurrah. So yeah, so Phil Tippett, huge respect for you. He's still going. He's done an entire animated movie that's gone, I think it's taken him 20 years to make. It's called Mad God. It is very out there, very adult, but it's some of the most amazing animation, stop motion animation you're ever going to see. That only came out a couple of years ago, but, but we're, we're sort of drifting away from it. Greg, I want you to explain to me why a cold-blooded dinosaur shouldn't be doing all that activity in the middle of the night in a rainstorm. Okay, well, hold off on that for a moment, because that's another even more complicated point we're getting into there. I just want to say, while, while you mentioned Phil Tippett, and obviously we, you've already enthused about Steven Spielberg, and I'm a couple of years younger than Jem. I, I, I'll leave it there. Okay, basically. But, but, yeah, we had a slightly different sort of place in our lives when this film came out because when this film came out and just to point out we are real fans this why was in school i was in primary school when this film came out and i remember it was the only time that i took the time effort and money to save up my pocket money until i had collected the entire set of the jurassic park trading cards you know because wow I mean, we did you see the movie in the cinema 
I did see it in the cinema, yes. Were your parents kind of sitting there with you thinking, hang on, this might be a bit too much for him? I don't think so, no. I think a, a good old-fashioned dinosaur thing, I think it was perfectly fine. But, I mean, one of the big things is back then, you remember, you'd see a film and then you'd have to wait over a year for it to come yeah. onto television. And then not like these days where, you know... Oh, more than a year for TV, but it's going to take at least six months for it to be out on video. Exactly. So you've got to wait all this time. And so these trading cards were how we got the... You know, we'd, I'd seen this film. It was amazing. We got this trading card showing all the different scenes in the film. And, and that was how we got to relive moments of the film when sort of we were in school and we were talking about it and we were discussing it. But I've got to just say, the third member of sort of the backstage trilogy, the names that aren't on the people who aren't actually on the screen but this film would not be what it is i think we can agree without john williams no the composer absolutely yeah that jurassic park theme tune and i will tell you now that um for all those people listening yes when i got married a few years ago nearly five years ago now i got married and yes my wife came down the aisle to the soaring sound of the jurassic park theme tune because we're dinosaur hunting dinosaur hunting fossil hunting is how we met and everything else but that music just the the entire score is flawless and i think john williams he's amazing and he does get mentioned but it's so easy to overlook the composers when we're talking about films and pop culture and the actors are right there on the screen and you can see what they're doing and the director always talking about it and the composers they're quietly working underneath but when you get someone and i don't think there really is anyone else of the quality of john williams at this time just you just have to list the films he's worked on it's just something amazing. And I, th- I think just before we, we move on to the cold-blooded question, uh, I just wanted to give John Williams a mention because just incredible. But uh, There we go. Excellent. Well done. A nice nice touch there, Greg. Okay, so explain the difference between cold-blooded and warm-blooded and why dinosaurs generally didn't fight in the middle of a nighttime storm. Right, well, here's the problem with, with what, what you're asking me to explain there is that it might not be accurate, okay? And so we've got, these days, we think of two types of creatures. We think of cold-blooded and warm-blooded creatures. So a cold-blooded creature is something that doesn't produce its own internal heat. So you get something like a snake, and something like a snake that lays in the sun, baths in the sun to keep its body warmth, body temperature up, and as it gets colder, it gets less and less physically capable, and it slows right down. On the flip side, we've got warm-blooded people. That's us. You know, that's most mammals, or I think all mammals are warm-blooded. And so you're actually, your body is controlling its own temperature. That's why we immediately know we've got a problem if we put a thermometer in our mouth and it's reading over 100. that, That shouldn't be a natural body temperature. We control that ourselves. But dinosaurs, and this comes back right to what we were saying earlier on, that we just don't know things. There are certain things about dinosaurs we we just don't know because we're only looking at their skeletons. We're only looking at their bones and we compare them to different things. And for a long time, the thing we compared them to was lizards. That was the easiest comparison to make. In fact, going right back to the beginning, the second species of dinosaur ever named was the iguanodon. And the reason he's called the Iguanodon is the most identifiable part of him they'd found was the teeth. And they looked like iguana teeth. And Iguanodon literally means iguana tooth. And so if you ever get a chance to go to Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, or I'll come on to it in a minute, 
watch our documentary and you'll see it there. They actually based the model of the Iguanodon on an iguana. He looks like an iguana. He's got his legs stuck out to his side. Now, these days, we know all dinosaurs, their legs went straight down underneath their bodies. That's part of the definition. But when Jurassic Park came out, certainly going back that sort of time, yes, we thought all dinosaurs were cold-blooded because it's a relationship to lizards. Then we get to the fact that people realise they evolved into birds. And actually... Rather controversial here, and I've got to be careful with this one because it's a huge argument in dinosaur groups I look at on Facebook and things like that. There are two distinct different ways of classifying animals, and depending which classification you use, birds are or are not classed as dinosaurs. And one of the major classifications, actually, nowadays you'll find people referring to non-avian dinosaurs non-avian dinosaurs went extinct in 65 million years ago whereas they evolved into birds so birds being the descendants could still be considered dinosaurs and for some people they still are they just think of birds as dinosaurs which is where we get a lot of stuff in fact it was i believe a caracara bird that they ran along the ground which gave them the inspiration the idea of how a velociraptor would move which was then used to make the computer animations and everything else but now, then we, so we thought they were cold-blooded. Then we started to think, oh, well, hold on. If they're closely related to birds, they're big creatures, it actually be really difficult. If you think of something of the size of a Diplodocus, and that's got a basically, you know, big herbivores, they basically have to keep eating quite a lot of the time just to keep the energy up. For that Diplodocus to warm itself just from the sun and keep its whole body temperature up, that's going to be really difficult. So maybe they're not cold-blooded, maybe they're warm-blooded. And nowadays, uh, the last stuff I heard about it, paleontologists are now actually looking at perhaps it's something different. Perhaps it's a a third type of thing where where they're partly cold-blooded, partly warm-blooded, or they've got some entirely different system. These things are so foreign. Wow, okay. So we got cold-blooded, we got warm-blooded, then there's the hot-blooded Mediterraneans, and then we've got... I don't know, non-binary-blooded dinosaurs, you know, refusing to be put in any category? Really interesting. Okay, now, th- thank you for that. You, yeah, I was going to say, we, we don't want to sort of run too long on this, and, and the danger is you and I could talk for three hours on Jurassic. It could take the whole of the Jurassic era for us to describe this movie and dinosaurs, etc. But let's go back. Let's Let's talk about the new documentary. So, for the record, for everybody else, I'm not involved in in any of Greg's documentaries, but I've been an avid fan for years. He actually started doing them when we'd already were doing the podcast, that's how I was aware of them. But I have no skin in the game, but I'm telling you right now, I've absolutely enjoyed each and every one of them. And the the effort and the the, the production values for what is, you know, essentially a a small independent filmmaker are really impressive. You know, getting drone shots of things like Transylvanian castles and stuff like that, really, really impressive. So, personally, I can't wait to watch it. haven't seen it yet. I hope it's got dinosaurs in it. Uh, But over to Greg. uh, Tell us more. Okay, so, yeah, the new documentary is called uh, Seeking the First Dinosaur Hunters. And basically, the way it came about, a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff here, is that we... You know, we started off making these travel documentaries in 2019. We made one in Mexico. We made one in Turkey. Then we made one in Romania in February of 2020. And then for some reason, 
travel documentaries became a lot harder to film going throughout 2020 and into 2021. Some global pandemic or something happened and it, it slowed us all down. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being a bit glib there, but it didn't stop you, though, because you managed to get another one out. It didn't stop us because in September 21, we went up to Scotland and we were lucky. We worked with a research team, the Cetacean Research and Rescue Centre. And the great thing about them was they were in this one village that never had a case of COVID. It's this tiny village, only a few people. And we were so thoroughly tested going in and then we were isolated. We were either in with them or in the boat. We could film with them. But then coming into 2022, unfortunately, I've had some health problems that have uh, left me a lot of the time in a wheelchair. When I'm not in a wheelchair, I'm walking with a stick and we were looking into where we could travel and, you know, the travel things kept changing and the rules. And eventually so we said, right, we've got to do something a bit closer to home, but something we're really passionate about and something that a lot of people are interested in. And because it's where we started, it's how we met, we decided dinosaurs, but, you know, People have made documentaries about dinosaurs. The BBC did that huge Walking with Dinosaurs series. We're not going to top that with a dinosaur documentary. But we thought, well, hang on, one of the stories that's not really been told is about the origins of this, What when people first discovered dinosaurs. And so that's what we've gone back to look at. We start off looking at Mary Anning. And if you've not heard of Mary Anning, you may have heard the poem, She Sells Seashells on the Seashore, which may or may not be actually about Mary Anning. But Mary Anning, she was a fossil hunter, on the Jurassic Coast that we talked about earlier. And she started finding out, she didn't find dinosaurs, but she was good friends with William Buckland, uh, Mary Morland, Gideon Mantell, and Mary Ann Mantell. Yes, all three of the, the major women in this story are called Mary in some way. I don't know how that happened. Well, I believe it was, I mean, cause it, because it was linked to, obviously, the Virgin Mary, I believe in, like, around uh, about 1900-something like 40-50% of women in, in Britain were still called Mary. It's just, it's the go-to name. It's wonderful. And so, yes, yeah, so we, we looked at it, and like Jim says, I mean, he said we got the drone shots for the Romania documentary. And the thing is, yeah, we, we are very lucky as independent filmmakers that people buy into our vision. We, we, we speak to people, we speak to these museums. So, I mean, for this documentary, we got to go and film at the Crystal Park, the uh, Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, Crystal Palace Park, which are the first statues, first 3D representations of dinosaurs we have. And the same as Jurassic Park, there is a lot of stuff from 1853 that was wrong, that we thought that they thought was correct at the time, but turned out later on to be wrong. So we got to film there. We got to show these original ideas of dinosaurs. We got to go to the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences and film in with them. And we got to go to Oxford Museum. And in Oxford Museum... They even let us come behind the scenes. We're allowed to go behind the scenes at Oxford Museum. We were given all these special permissions. We're allowed to go places where where the public don't generally go, but researchers and filmmakers are sometimes allowed. And so we're just so lucky with the people that we got to work with and the things we got to do. And if you have any interest in dinosaurs at all. Now, one of the problems with the modern world is, you know, it's all streaming platforms and we do get up on a lot of these different streaming platforms, but... At the time of recording, I don't know which platforms we're going to be on when and which platforms are available in which part of the world. So best thing to do, if this sounds interesting to you, go to SeekingTheFirstDinosaurHunters.com. Keep it nice and easy. SeekingTheFirstDinosaurHunters.com and you will find on there all the places you can currently watch the documentary. Well, I'm going to add to that that uh, if you're following me on Twitter at Daduchu on Twitter... Uh, let's see how long Twitter lasts. Who who knows? <laughs> but 
Uh, I always sort of tweet out what the latest episode is, and I know a number of people sort of retweet that. I will, of course, be tweeting out links to the documentary as well. So, you know, if you're following me, you'll absolutely get the information. Maybe at some point, Greg's going to sort of like put put the links actually on this podcast as well. So have a look at for any links underneath this podcast in whatever app you're listening to this on. Thank you very much, by the way. So, yeah, absolutely. We want to be supporting Greg. And like I say, I don't personally have any skin in the game, but I've genuinely enjoyed every single documentary he's done. And to be honest, really surprised in a good way and impressed at just the sheer level of production value. This isn't just sort of like a guy on a unicycle sort of standing there with a pasty in one hand and a cigarette in the other sort of like belching out something you know there's it, it, it's it's genuinely up there with the sort of documentaries you might see on something like the bbc perhaps without the budget of actual lots of different locations and and massive amounts of cgi but genuinely really impressive stuff and and particularly the the whale watching one is is amazing as well i mean it really does feel like a an episode of blue planet really at certain points so yeah that's that's my point on it as well and uh, greg is there anything you want to sort of like finish off with i'm just gonna say well first of all just thank you thank you jim that's that's really really nice of you to say i'm gonna say yeah keep keep in touch with you you can find jim at jim deduchu on twitter you'll find me now i'm at greg and felicity because me and my wife are a filmmaking team so that's at greg and felicity instagram twitter facebook you'll find us on any of those do feel free to bring us into conversations about anything to do with dinosaurs or history or if you're tweeting gem you can tweet me as well and we'll give your own own different bits of opinion and thoughts on things but mainly just want to say to gem uh, because for those of you who don't know we used to do this podcast together and a couple of years ago i'd reached the point where for various reasons i had to stop presenting and gem gem said yes but i want you to stay on behind the scenes and gem has kept condensed histories going so, uh, Jem, I just want to say thank you for letting me step out from behind the computer for j- just one little pop back in and have a little chat on air. And uh, that's all I've got to say. So I'll hand over to you to to end the show in a traditional fashion. Uh, thank you, Greg. But you never have to thank me. Love you. So that's it, everybody. Uh, thanks very much for listening. And another episode coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.